Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. No Compromise number 48, the Mount Ebal Curse Tablet, Part 2. Why does it matter? Okay, there's, I mean, there's so many stories you could put around it about right. who did this and why they did it. Yep. But the importance of this, okay, so we, we know the biblical reference, we know the background on the dig and, and what was found. So now what is the importance? What, why does it matter? To oh, our, my goodness. To our... <laughs> and, and now you're getting to the uh-huh. point of what it is that makes me so excited mm-hmm. about this curse tablet. Yeah. And all of you are looking at me saying, eh, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> right. But this is something that is at least 200 mm-hmm. years before any other reference like this. Right. So this is giving credence to the view of the Exodus being at the time that the Bible actually the Bible says, says it was. Right. And so it's kind of throwing in the face of so much leftist criticism mm-hmm. of the Bible that it's completely wrong on its view. Right. And that the Bible itself is more historically right. accurate than all of the reconstructions we've tried to build up from our archaeological understanding. Right. And it's not that it's defying the archaeology. Mm-hmm. It's just saying, look, these theories that you've built up don't hold up to the archaeological evidence. So this is kind of at the emergence of Israel as a nation. Yeah. That's what they're dating it back to. Right. This is the moment when Joshua comes in to the promised land. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the first official acts that he does. And it corresponds with a pretty good notion of the conservative historical understanding of the biblical text. Right. And I remember listening to Scott Stripling talking about the language. What's the significance of the language? Yeah. And this is interesting too. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Because most of the leftist scholars who want to discount the traditional Christian and Mm -hmm. Judaic views of the biblical text Mm -hmm. say that the language of the Hebrews at this time would not have even been written, right? And yet the text here, given the dating of this defixio, is clearly showing that they were capable of writing. Yeah. And the writing that we find, interestingly enough, and I'm not an epigrapher, I don't know the history of these things, but given the scholarly evidence that we've been given, this is the beginning of the Hebrew text as an alphabetic text. Mm-hmm. It, it shows the transformation from the sort of Egypt-like hieroglyphics mm-hmm. to the alphabetic script of the Hebrews that we have today. And of mm-hmm. course, it's an evolutionary script as it's moving from the hieroglyphics mm-hmm. into the more alphabetic script. Right. But this is very clear, and it's actually laid out pretty well. We read that today. Yeah, as we you read have to it. you have to read the scholarly paper. Right. We have a link to that in the description. Right, mm-hmm. and you probably have to be a lot smarter than we are to be able to get yeah. all of it. But it's still interesting to <laughs> look is. at and read and recognize that they're tracing the history of the development of the language and the alphabetic script in which it was written, and we're discovering that this language was well in advance right. of what the liberals think, think it, is. it could possibly have right. been. Right. So this pushes it back 200 years at least 
before they say it was even possible for them right. to write anything. And that, yeah, that's what the exciting part is. So for the most part, they denied that at the time of Joshua and Moses, anything could have been written down mm-hmm. in the Hebrew script. Right. This find, this, if it's vindicated, mm-hmm. seems to indicate that they are utterly out to sea right. on that theory, that Joshua and Moses were completely capable of writing the Bible, the Old Testament, in the script of the Hebrew language. Yep, yep. And that's what's really amazing. Yeah. That's what's really <laughs> exciting, gets it, you excited. It makes my heart leap and my feet <laughs> legs, go up and down. Your leg starts <laughs> going up and down. Because <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, God is vindicated again. <laughs> yeah. And, and the interesting thing is the Hittites. Yes. So the Hittites... Were a, and I actually detailed this. Mm-hmm. In, you did in your episode 52. I, I'm not sure if I did it in the, in the episode 52, but in my discussion with... You actually did this uh, with... With Max Doubt. Yeah, you actually did this with Max Doubt. Right. And the Hittite Empire was doubted. Well, the Hittites were brought up in the Bible. You can read about them. And then they kind of vanished. Right. And there was Completely no, from history. There was right. no, no archaeological discovery right. of them. And therefore, they thought that once again... The Bible is just making things up out of whole cloth, and they never existed. Right. And then archaeology discovered Discovery. the Hittite Empire. Mm-hmm. And so, once again, faith in the biblical structure actually brought us to the point of recognizing that the Bible is a better historical record than almost anyone's willing right. to give it credit it's... for in the scholarly community. Right. I remember when I was doing school with the kids, it, they always said, it's it's not a history text, it's not a science text, but when it speaks of history and science, it's always correct. And in, in the case of Max Doubt, he tried to make the point mm-hmm. that archaeologists have found no evidence of the Hebrews mm-hmm. in Egypt. Right. And I said, okay. Not yet. <laughs> exactly. Not yet. Right. And therefore, it's dangerous to try to draw a conclusion from mm-hmm. the fact that they haven't yet found the evidence. Right. Because the evidence is mounting in all kinds of places mm-hmm. towards, again, the historical reality of what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. It's mounting. It's not falling apart. We haven't found anything that definitively denies it. And so... Right. Why and deny the text? Right. It's just coming in God's time. Unless you have some sort of ideological axe right. to grind. Right. And that ideological axe that lies behind so much of the critical commentary is what I find such great mm-hmm. joy in seeing brought down. Yeah. And yeah. I think that this discovery in particular does a <laughs> does a fascinating job of doing that if it's found to be correct. And with the publication of the scholarly paper, I think we're well on the way Mm -hmm. to establishing the validity of this text to be exactly what Dr. Stripling has said it is. And you're actually researching right now for a Christian atheist that you're going to do this on this topic. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tie it in with C.S. Lewis. Yes. C.S. Lewis's (laughs) Modern Theology mm-hmm. and Biblical Criticism, I think is the name of the article. And, and the uh, Documentary Hypothesis. And the Documentary Hypothesis. You're going to bring yes. all of these things together in one. I'm going to try to. Yes, you were making fun <laughs> of me today on our walk earlier that I, I'm not doing it as quickly as I should, and that's probably the case. That's all right. 
Okay, so yeah, all of this is really exciting, but let's change topics and let's talk about the actual curse. There's something interesting about the whole literary form of the curse Ooh. that we found out. Now, Galil, he was one of the collaborators. Gershon he was, Galil. He was Hebrew. Hebrew. Yep, he was the Hebrew collaborator. He recognized the uh, curse as a formulaic literary structure, and it's called chiastic parallelism. Yes. And that was kind of exciting, right? It was to find really out. exciting. Um, this, is, <laughs> this was interesting to us because as we always read through the Bible, you know, you we read it, we're constantly asking out loud. Yes. Um, why are these things repeated so much? <laughs> There's so many things that are repeated over and over again. And then now this information comes to light for yes. us. And you started researching this through this curse tablet discovery, you learned about chiastic parallelism. Yes. And so you started researching it, and then you found that in the Bible, there's a lot of passages a lot of... that follow this literary form. Right. It's everywhere, actually, right? Isn't yep. it everywhere? Yep. In fact, as we worked on you memorizing first, second, and third John. <laughs> this is embarrassing, yeah. actually. <laughs> we would both get so frustrated at the repetition in those books. I mean, the, the text would be slightly altered and yeah. it would be a repetition, but it'd be slightly altered. Yes. And it would be difficult. It's like, which one is it this time? <laughs> what, what, would be, what would be an example? Oh. I can't, I'm putting you on the spot. You won't be able to remember. Yeah. But it was like, you say it this way and then you say it like slightly altered. Slightly and, different. And yes. you're like, what is going, we would get. It's maddening. Yeah, in fact, would... I, I once said to you while we were in the process of memorizing second John, first John, uh -huh. first John, I said to you, when I get to heaven yeah, was... and I get to talk to the apostle John, who I adore, I mean, I love the fourth gospel. It's my favorite of the four and Gospels. And you were named after John. And I was named after John. So it's not like I have any animus towards the <laughs> Apostle John. But it's like, dude, why did you write this this way? Yeah. It's incredibly difficult to memorize, memorize because you say the same thing 14 different times. Slightly you, altered. In a slightly altered way. And it's almost impossible. That was our frustration. But then God. <laughs> and then and then God shows us that right. there is a, a a bigger structure yeah, going it was on, like, a more subtle structure. It's like it's like God said to you, John, it's not John that did it, it's me. It's me, right. right? And this is the way I like to write. Yes. This is the way I you know Well, and one of the points in C. S. Lewis's article mm -hmm. is that and he's talking to a group of theologians at the time, and he says to them why should I believe these esoteric theories mm -hmm. that you're developing about the biblical text when you can't even read the basic text right, 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 right. and understand it as a literary work? Lewis says, look, I read literature. Mm -hmm. And when I read this, these are the things I get out of it. Right. And you can't even see the basic structures that are there. Right. Why should I trust you to read behind the text, mm -hmm. which is what the higher criticism is all about. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I that's so, what you're going to talk about in the Christian Atheist episode right. that you're creating right now. And so I think that in a lot of ways, this discovery mm -hmm. undermines like a century and a half mm -hmm. of scholarship that has been an entire waste of time. Mm -hmm. It's just showing it to be utterly useless. Right. To have been going down a rabbit hole 
and not producing anything of value. In fact, going in exactly the opposite direction of where it should have gone. And that's both sad and, I have to say, a bit of a delight for me because I've been arguing against this when I was an atheist, thinking to myself, this is a bad way to interpret literature. Yeah. Both in terms of Shakespearean literature and in terms of the biblical literature. Why are we doing this? Right. And so reminds me of Watho in uh, Dayboy Night Girl when she gets totally frustrated and she wasted her time all those years raising the two children, you know, in a preconceived notion that she had. And then it was a waste of time because they didn't act according to what her hypothesis. Right. And instead of simply acknowledging the fault. She doubled down. Right. And she's, and she got angry at um, all of creation. At all of creation Mm -hmm. and decided to destroy it all. And this is, this is the leftist structure throughout. It's the Hegelian way in which things work. Right. Right. And we see it over and over again. And here I go on my soapbox. But just in case, just in case you don't know what we're talking about with Watho, go back to our day boy, night girl discussion we had about four weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. So um, for me personally, it was one of those moments when I got to see another part of who God is and what brings him joy and, and where he finds beauty and, you know, the mind of God, like Mm -hmm. he thinks in this, chiastic parallelism yes and the neat thing <laughs> when about he writes the chiastic parallelism and now i'm excited to start trying to find it mm-hmm. in the scripture in the scripture right? um, because one of the examples we found is in the noahic mm-hmm. story right how everything revolved around one particular passage mm-hmm. and then everything else in the passage developed this large what they call a ring structure mm-hmm. so it's like a f- like like 18 or 17 different elements that are parallel in the structure. Right. And, and then, then they, there's a central passage around which it all flows. Right. And it's like. It's kind of like, I mean, if you could visualize, it's kind of like, wouldn't you say an upside down triangle yep. comes down to a single the point. And then that on top of it, almost like an hourglass on yeah. top of another triangle that expands back out again. Yeah. And it and that central point is like a mirror that both and sides reflect. It is maddening. I think sometimes if our listeners could listen to you and I reading the Bible together, mm-hmm. it's like. Jenny and I, I guess, have minds that are not attuned in certain ways to the evangelical way of reading the Bible, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because both of us approach it from two perspectives. The first part of her life was not a Christian life, and so she didn't grow up in the church. And so she doesn't have these basic structures built in from the ground up of the evangelical notion of looking at things. And I did grow up with that from the Mm -hmm. start. And then I walked away from it for so long that coming back to it, I have fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And so when we approach the Bible, we have two sort of things going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. That notion of tremendous respect for this text, and yet an unwillingness to simply say what evangelicals always say, that Yeah, we just accept what has been said about it. Mm -hmm. We want to see something more. We're constantly looking for something Mm -hmm. more. And it's amazing how often God shows us something more. Yeah, he will show you something more. I mean, I have loved reading the Old Testament with you. 
because you have a much better grasp of what's going on. And different times, the questions that I ask, you're able to answer. And both of us are to the point now where we just want, (laughs) we don't want the typical sermons. We, We want something new from God. And this chiastic parallelism thing is exactly what we're looking for because it shows that the mind of God is infinitely creative and that those patterns that we saw that were frustrating to us, like, why is he repeating that? He just said that two verses ago. Right. Now we understand. Right. And we see that there's a structure, a logical structure behind all that's going on. And we get too arrogant in our world. Mm -hmm. We think that we have everything sewn up and that we can answer the questions rather than looking and saying, wait a second, I probably don't know. Maybe I should look more deeply into the text. And this is another reason I find this investigation so exciting because it reveals another level Mm -hmm. of the mind of God behind what's going on. Right, exactly. And I think... That's where we are. We want to know the mind of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually what Einstein said, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. What I want to know is the mind of God. And his way of searching for it was through science. And I think that's a valid way of searching. Mm -hmm. But at some point, we've got to get to the realization that if we're going to know God, we probably ought to listen to what he has to say. Right. Explicitly. And then he speaks to us through whatever language we understand. Well, Einstein understood science. Right. You understand philosophy. Right. And he reached me through that. Right. But he brought me back to the Bible Mm -hmm. as revelation of himself, the most clear revelation of himself. So can you tell us more about chiastic parallelism through your research? You want to talk about the Noahic? The Noahic covenant. Yeah. There is a great article on this that I would point our listeners to. You'll put Um, the link in the description. Yeah, we'll put Mm -hmm. the link in the description for sure. And I would encourage all of you to read it. So you were talking about the Noahic account. Genesis. Right. And you said about how the chiastic parallelism, it shows up in there. It's an example of that. Yep. Yeah. And that's that's a lot of fun. Wait. I mean, it's it's scattered throughout the Bible. Right. But this was one that really... One of the classic examples. Yeah. And one that the critics, the, uh, the higher critics use as an example of separating out the JEDP theory, Mm -hmm. the documentary hypothesis, that there were a variety of authors across the centuries responsible for bringing the biblical text together, and that it could not have been written by Moses. Okay. So that's one of the fundamental claims that they make. I got you. All right. Um, And the way in which they do that, the way in which they start to do that, is they say, there are different names for God. Jehovah and Elohim. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, they start in Genesis. And they say, okay, but these are not the same names for God. And therefore, they must have been written by different people. I see. And these are different accounts, therefore, that were later brought together. And so, just as an introduction to the JEDP theory, the documentary hypothesis theory, Mm -hmm. the points that they make is that Quote, and I'm quoting from an article here that we'll put into... We'll put the link in, in the description. Yeah. It says that the J documents, that is, those that call God by the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, are the sections, verses, or in some cases, parts of verses, that were written by one or more authors who preferred to use the Hebrew name Yahweh, Jehovah, to refer to God. Mm-hmm. 
it is proposed that this author wrote about 900 to 850 BC. Mm. Okay, so you see already that the oldest author that they refer to here is actually almost like 400 years after the time of Moses. Right. So Moses could not possibly have written it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the major claims that they make because the script wasn't even available at that time. So Moses wasn't literate and could not have written this. Which, again, the cursed tablet, the (laughs) discovery of the cursed tablet has... Makes it clear that there was a Hebrew script. Right. And that's one of the reasons I love this so much because it sort of blows Mm -hmm. this theory right out of the water. Right, right. Secondly, the E documents Mm -hmm. are the texts that use the name Elohim for God and were supposedly written around 750 to 700 BC. So again, we're getting relatively newer in time. And then the D stands for Deuteronomy, most of which was written by a different author or group of authors, Mm -hmm. perhaps around the time of King Josiah's reforms in 621 BC. And then the P stands for priest and identifies the texts in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Pentateuch that were written by a priest or priests during the exile in Babylon after 586 BC. Okay. And so the documentary hypothesis is... Well, hold on, that's the J-E-D-P. Right, which is the same as the documentary hypothesis, J-E-D-P. And it's the idea that there were a collection of writings Mm -hmm. much later than Moses that were brought together by some scribes in a later time to put together the structure of the Hebrew Bible as we now know it. Right, over a, a longer period of time. And one of the fundamental assumptions of this is that Moses himself could never have written because there was no Hebrew script at the time of Moses. Right. Well, this find all by itself blows that out of the water. Right. But then Moses became a part of the Egyptian royalty. Yeah. And so he would have been trained in all of that. He was the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh. Right. And you would imagine Mm -hmm. that if the Hebrews were slaves, they probably would have been serving as scribes. In the royal structure. Yeah. So they would definitely have picked it up there if they had no written language before that. And that actually corresponds pretty well with what Scott Stripling says in terms of the development of the language. With Joseph. And Joseph, that's right. Living like 30, I think it was like 30 years. Right. As one of the leaders in Egypt. Well, so many years as a prisoner and then so many years as a leader. Right. Like second under Pharaoh. Right. And he would have, I mean, during his time, he. He would have been learned, yeah. Well, and, and as a servant in Potiphar's house, mm-hmm. he would definitely have been like he would taking have had, care of records right, and all right. the rest of it. He so he probably was literate even then. Joseph mm-hmm. was right, um, and that's a good point. Yeah. All right, so that's the JEDP theory, the documentary hypothesis, mm-hmm. and it's founded on one of the fundamental ideas that Moses could not have been literate, and that the idea of God mm-hmm. falls apart into. Yahweh and Elohim at much later parts, different different structures, that the first Hebrew reference to Yahweh would have been around 950. Well, that's blown out of right, the water this by this curse find, tablet. This curse tablet. Mm-hmm. And what also is blown out of the water is that those two would not have been combined in a single text because this text is from at least 1200 mm-hmm. BC. Right. 
I think, and 1250 was what Zertal dated the circular circular um, altar altar. to. Mm -hmm. So 1250 BC. And it may very well be older than that. So the date that they give, 950, Mm -hmm. it's already like three or 400 years before that. That we have proof that God, Elohim, and God, Yahweh, Yahweh are together in a single text. Just as it appears in Genesis. And this just destroys the documentary hypothesis. Now, if we were, (laughs) if we came at this from the right angle, we would say, why were they both at the same time? And do you know what I'm saying? Rather than saying they couldn't be at the same time, there's a reason why sometimes they said God that way and sometimes they said God this way. Right. And this, I mean, takes us right back to Lewis's claim mm -hmm. in his article. If you can't read the text in front of you, why should we trust you to read between the lines and behind the lines, which is what you're claiming to be able to Mm do? So, yeah. So now, how does this all have to do with (laughs) chiastic parallelism, which is what you were supposed to talk about? Right. So in the Noahic account, (laughs) Uh it, it is fascinating to find the chiastic structure because it answers so much of the frustration that you and I different yeah. times address in the Old the Testament. Repetition. Why are you repeating this? Mm-hmm. We've heard this like six times now. And Why do we Testament. have to hear it again? And in the New Testament too. And in the New Testament mm-hmm. too, which again shocks me that it's there. But again, we will have a link to this article in the description. So right. please go and read it for yourself. Right. But Notice what's going on here in this ring structure, this chiastic parallelism in chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis. And I'm just going to read the chiastic parallelism here because it consists of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 lines before it gets to that central that central point mm-hmm. which is like the mirror right and that's the mirror and then what comes after that is directly 15. reflecting all of those what was it 16 did i say i think i think you said 15 okay 15 or 16 lines reflecting it backwards again the other direction right and if you look at this article you actually see it you see it and it is so it. clear mm-hmm. and you can't i mean there's no way that's there by accident right and it happens over and over again yep um and so here it is Genesis, the account of the flood in the ring structure of chiastic parallelism. Elohim, there's the name for God, Mm -hmm. pledges to Noah to destroy all flesh. That is A, chapter 6, verse 13. B, the flood to destroy all flesh, chapter 6, verse 17. C, covenant to sustain Noah and his animals. Chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. D. Command to gather food while world is destroyed. Chapter 6, verse 21. E. Command to enter the ark and the fulfillment. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. F. Year 600, beginning of the flood. Chapter 7, verse 6. G. Birds enter the ark. Chapter 7, verse 8. H. Seven Days Waiting for Flood, chapter 7, verse 10. I, Rain on the Earth, chapter 7, verse 12. J, Birds Enter the Ark, chapter 7, verse 14. K, 
Hashem, that is, Yahweh, shuts Noah in, chapter 7, verse 16. L, 40 days of the flood, chapter 7, verse 17a. M, waters increase, chapter 7, verses 17b through 18. N, mountains covered, chapter 7, verses 19 through 20. O, 150 days when waters prevail, chapter 7, verse 24. And now we have the central point of the story. Where everything goes in reverse. God remembers Noah. And that's kind of like the pivot point. Mm -hmm. Chapter 8, verse 1. And then we have the repetition of O. 150 days, O prime, right. 150 days when waters abate. Chapter 8, verse 3. N prime. Mountaintops visible. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. M prime. Waters abate. Chapter 8, verse 5. L prime. Forty days of receding waters. Chapter 8, verse 6a. K prime. Noah opens windows of the ark. Chapter 8, verse 6b. J prime. Raven and dove leave ark. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. I prime. Water on the earth. Chapter 8, verse 9. H prime. Seven days waiting for water to subside. Chapter 8, verse 10. G prime. Dove leaves the ark. Chapter 8, verses 10b to 12. F prime. Year 601. The earth dries. Chapter 8, verse 13. E prime. Command to leave the ark and the fulfillment. Chapter 8, verses 15 to 19. D prime. Commands regarding food in the new order. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. C prime. Covenant to sustain all flesh. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. B prime. No flood will destroy flesh. Chapter 9, verse 15. And A prime. Elohim pledges to Noah to preserve all flesh. And each one of those letters corresponds mm-hmm. to the letter in the structure right. above. Right. And it is an astounding mm-hmm. thing. And to when see... you say above, it means it's above God remembered Noah. Yes. And so this structure is seen throughout the Bible mm-hmm. in so many places and wasn't even recognized by biblical scholars until sometime in the 18th century okay. after the development of the documentary hypothesis. Okay. So it's become even more clear now as we look at it. Mm-hmm. And I would bet. <laughs> that we're missing all kinds of other oh, important yeah. <laughs> things. As Jenny and I were reading through the scholarly paper, and we were seeing the way in which the scribes wrote things, and I thought to myself, we're missing all kinds mm-hmm. of information here yep. that we're not understanding. Yep. And again, that points me to what Lewis said. If you can't even read the text in front of you, mm-hmm. why should I trust you to read behind the text and between its lines? Right. And right. I think that's dead on. They're arrogant in their claims to be able to unravel the secrets of the Bible mm-hmm. when they can't even read the Bible from the right. first. Exactly. Okay. So I haven't exhausted my excitement, <laughs> but unless you have something else to key me into, I don't have a lot more to say. Yeah, I think you really covered it. This was fun because we, yeah, we struggled as to what to do this time, this week, mm-hmm. because we're about to take a trip mm-hmm. and we needed like, 
two weeks worth of no compromise to be able to post. Right. And I think this filled the bill quite well. Yeah, I think so. And you, <laughs> you've been really excited about this find, this archaeological find. Yes. I'm never mm-hmm. lacking in enthusiasm I guess, <laughs> I know, you're on always, certain things. You're always enthusiastic about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm most enthusiastic about you, actually. Aww, you're so sweet. Okay, so that's all for now. And hopefully everyone, at least everyone in the Northern Hemisphere and mostly in here in America, <laughs> is enjoying the unofficial start to summer, which mm. is Memorial Day. Next Monday on The Christian Atheist, we'll likely be posting the first part of a discussion, that discussion that we talked about previously, that you had with a frequent guest speaker here on The Christian Atheist, and that's Raymond Mahalan. Yes. If you're interested in knowing more about The Christian Atheist, why not check out the link to John's book in the description, Through the Looking Glass, The Implosion of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. And as always, if you have the means, why not buy us a cup of coffee? There's a link to that in in the description as well. So we thank you so much for taking time to listen to us. We appreciate you very much. And we hope you have a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you next week. Yep. I love you, my dear. I love you, Johnny. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview and be a Christian.